Thanks, Bev. Uh, it's worth saying, we do have a practice here where uh, we say, this is the word of the Lord, thanks be to God. And for some reason, for some readings, that's a joy, isn't it? We just go, yeah, rip in, that is great, thanks be to God. And uh, like maybe after that psalm, yeah? And then we have the reading we just read, and some of us might find, thanks be to God, uh, a little bit harder to say. This morning, we are going to continue our sermon series uh, in the book of Romans. And we're going to do just the next passage, which is before us. And so I'm going to ask God to help us uh, to do justice to this part of God's Word, uh, that we might learn what He wants to say to us through it, and we'll need His help. So how about we pray? Heavenly Father, we thank You that You are present as the author of this Word, We ask, Father, that you might give us insight and humility to sit under it, and that, Father, you might change us by it, for we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, well, I've uh, watched TV occasionally. I've been watching a bit of MasterChef, of course, because that's very important. Anyone else? No? Good. Right, just me. Always good to start with an illustration that works. There's an ad that's been on the TV a little bit recently uh, for MLC. And uh, they've got a picture of this family sitting down to eat. And it talks about the wonderful life that they have. A life filled with friends new and old, with family of all ages sitting around their table. And the tagline at the end of the ad, having seen all this, they sort of go, what would you like to change? And she goes, well, what I really, really want is life unchanging. Life unchanging. And I wonder if for you today life unchanging would actually be a gift. I want to ask, is that truly desirable? Is that really what we want? The the, the marketers think this is a fantastic line, so that's why they put it up there, life unchanging, right? But I I ask you this morning, are you having a great day today? Very few of you are. Somebody made you get dressed up in a cape before you came to church or something like that, right? Well, so you don't want this day to go on. Like this, this day can stop. Maybe another day I, I could go with life unchanging. I think it's a very strange thing. And, and it's strange because I actually don't think many of us want life to be unchanging. I think a lot of us would like a lot of things in life to change. There were a group of people in the Bible who thought that everything was going to go on the same. When, when uh, Peter writes his letter, he says, In the last days... People will come scoffing and saying, where is this return of Jesus? Everything goes on as it has since the beginning of the world. Basically, people are going to say, hey, you Christians believe Jesus is coming back, but guess what we see? Everything's exactly the same. Nothing ever changes. And and in 2 Peter, he writes that it will change, and it will change because one day Jesus will return. And when he does, he'll bring the day of the Lord. And so the Bible tells us that the day of the Lord is coming when all humanity will be facing death without excuse before the righteous judge. That's what's coming. A day will come where everything will change. Now at that point, most of us go, I didn't come to church for that today, right? I don't want to know that. In fact, you might go to some churches where you'll never hear that. I grew up in a church like that. You would never have heard that there was a day of the Lord coming. I I really did. A church where that would never have been said. 
We're saying it today because it's in God's word, but I do want to think about our responses. I mean, the first response to that is to say, well, we don't need a day of the Lord to come, a day of judgment to come, because I'm not too bad. I'm pretty good. And you guys have heard me enough on this topic. Generally, the way that we work out whether I'm not too bad is to say I'm not as bad as that person. I can name someone who's worse than me. I'm not bad. And things aren't too crazy. God, you don't need to bring an end to the world in judgment because things aren't too crazy. Just settle down. In other words, it really isn't anything to get too worked up about, God. Hold your horses. We don't need one of these terrible days of the Lord. Just, just be calm. And then we could say, well, my God wouldn't have a terrible day of the Lord. My God wouldn't have a terrible day of the Lord. But let, let's just think about those things for a second. First of all, when we say I'm not too bad, we all have selective amnesia. How do I know? Because I do, and I'm a human being just like you. And there are things in my life which I am ashamed of. And I know there are in yours too. We'd say things aren't too crazy, and I'd say, well, have a look at Syria and work out if you'd like that to continue. It should break our hearts. We'd say it isn't anything to get too worked up about. And if that's the case, maybe we're living in the house in the ad, which is by the sea with friends and family around. And we think, this life on this day, I want to have go forever. But I reckon that's entirely selfish. There's enough going on in the world that should be set right, that is wrong right now. And so if you say, I want it to go on and never change, I think it's incredibly selfish. And then fourthly, when we say, my God wouldn't, we're actually playing a little sleight of hand. Can I explain this to you really quickly? When we say, my God wouldn't, what we're doing is we've invented a God. Okay? He doesn't exist. Just let you know a little secret. Okay? The God you wish existed doesn't exist. There is a God who's really there. And he isn't changed by what you wish him to be. Any more than this tower out here, I could wish to be concrete so that the glass didn't keep breaking, right? I could wish that all day, but it won't change it. It is what it is. It's the same with God. And so it's a little sleight of hand. My God wouldn't do that. Your God doesn't exist, but there is a God who does, and he isn't changed by your wish. Here's what the Bible says. The Bible says in 1.18, the wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all the godlessness and wickedness of people who suppress the truth by their wickedness. You see, us saying we're not too bad, we hope things are okay, it shouldn't be a problem, let life go on unchanging is a lie. We're suppressing the truth. A day is going to come. And all we're doing is suppressing the truth. Now, we aren't the first people to uh, object to the idea that the wrath of God is coming. So what I want to do today is to think about some people who might have objected, help, have that help us think it through, and then hear what God's Word says here. So uh, there's a man called Pierre-Simon uh, Laplace, and uh, he was a mathematician, a French mathematician, and he had worked out the way that the planets moved around, refined the theory, and got it pretty much tickety-boo. Napoleon, pretty powerful guy, emperor of France, he says to him, uh, where is God in your work? Right, you've done all this maths, but where's God? Where's God in your work? And he replied famously, I have no need of that hypothesis. I have no need of that hypothesis. You see, we're in the enlightenment. 
We've got smart enough to abandon God. We've evolved from needing all that superstition. So I have no need for that hypothesis. Now, some of you today might be sitting there thinking, gracious, the wrath of God, we don't need any of that stuff. We've got past it. We're too enlightened to need this sort of thing. In contrast, the Bible says we're not enlightened, and it talks to us about the God who is there. We're going to see some of the things about the God who is there. The first is that he is the creator. Have a look at what it says in verse 20. For since the creation of the world... God's invisible qualities, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood from what has been made so that people are without excuse. See, the Bible says the universe around us didn't just happen. It was made by someone immensely powerful. It's created. But what sort of creator is he? Well, we could turn to the atheist. This is a guy called uh, Sam Harris. Sam Harris uh, has written a number of books about uh, why God isn't particularly good. And uh, he says, God is either impotent, evil, or imaginary. He's an atheist, in case you didn't get in on the boat. He's an atheist. He says, God is either impotent, evil, or imaginary. Impotent is he's not powerful. So if God is there, he can't be powerful because evil stuff happens in the world. If he was really powerful, he'd stop it. So God must be impotent. Or he's evil. He's powerful enough to stop it, but doesn't. So that makes him evil. Or thirdly, if he's not powerful enough to stop it and he's evil, then maybe he's just imaginary. So maybe there's no God at all. That's Sam Harris's response to what God is like. In response, the passage here says very clearly that God is righteous. That is, he's wholly good. He is the very definition of what is right and pure and true. We're reminded of this in the creation account in Genesis chapter 1. You remember the creation account isn't a science textbook for Mr. Laplace, Yes? It is, however, how the world came to being, an account of the world coming into being. It shows the ordering and the plan of God. And at the end of that, uh, end of that section in chapter 1, it says, God saw all that he had made, and it was very good. The heavens and the earth were completed in all their vast array. By the seventh day, God had finished the work he had been doing, so on the seventh day he rested. See, God's so good, he made a world that when he looked at it at the end, he was able to take a day off. It's beautiful. There it is. It's totally good. Now, if God was bad, he would have made a world with flaws. That wasn't what happened. It was so good, he could sit back on the seventh day and look at it and go, it's wholly good. God is good. Secondly, when God introduces himself to Moses, do you remember the burning bush? Have you heard of Moses and the burning bush? Okay, The people of God have been in slavery in Egypt. And they are thinking to themselves, God has abandoned us. Nobody is thinking about us. We're just suffering here. God shows himself to Moses. And when he reveals himself, this is what he says. Go assemble the elders of Israel. This is in Exodus 3. And say to them, the Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, appeared to me and said, I have watched over you and have seen what has been done to you in Egypt. And then he says, and now I will save you. God sees. 
God knows and he is powerful enough to save. The God who is there is righteous, holy, good. God is rightly understood as separate to, yet engaged with his creation. That's our God. If we think about the place of wrath, so I've just said God's righteous, right? Didn't we say wrath before? So how do those come together? Well, we know this is the overview of the, uh, the timeline of the Bible. It goes from creation to new creation. There's Jesus here. Here's the Old Testament. It starts off with creation, and it's very good. Now, is that the way it is today? Is everything very good? I know you can help me out here. The answer is good, because you're living in the same world I am. That's great, okay? So the Bible tells us something happened. It says that sin came into the world and ruined our relationship with God, with one another, and with the created order. That's what happened. Now, if you're God and you made it good, and that creation shook its fist in your face and said, we don't need you, we're going to run this our own way, rack off, paraphrasing, then it would be unsurprising that God was angry with that response. He made it beautiful, provided everything that was required, and the Bible says he was angry. He wanted to punish their sin. And we think, oh, what's the opposite of angry? What happens if I have a God who isn't angry? Well, the opposite of anger isn't love. The opposite of anger is indifference. Imagine Cain killed who? Abel. And God said, no problems. I can't wait for the block to start this season. Imagine if God didn't care about that evil. Imagine if God looked at people hurting each other, destroying the environment, creating corrupt power structures, doing all the evil that we see in the world around us, and simply folded his arms and said, unlucky. Would you worship a God like that? That would mean when you get upset about evil in the world that you are more righteous than God. Do you see that? If you were to be upset by evil in the world, you'd be more righteous than God. That can't be right, can it? And so it is good that God is angry because it shows us, particularly when he looks at Rome, if God is to be righteous, there will be wrath. It'll be holy and right and good wrath, but there must be anger against sin. Do you see? Yeah, yeah, but as soon as we talk about God being angry with sin, do you remember this? But what about those who haven't heard in Africa? Yeah? What about those who haven't heard in Africa? Who said that? Who's the great quote? Every youth kid in the 1980s. Well, probably they still do it today. I don't know. I haven't been a youth kid for some time. Did anyone ask this question? Have you thought this question? Here's God. He's angry with people who aren't right with him. Hang on, but what about the kids in Africa? Tell me you've thought of this. None of you. All right, just me. Well, I thought about it. What's the answer? The answer is here in this passage. What about those people? It's here and it says God reveals himself. God makes himself known. Have a look with me at verses 18 to 20. The wrath of God is being revealed. Have a look at verse 19. Since what may be known about God is plain to them, because God has made it plain to them, for since the creation of the world, his invisible qualities, his eternal power and divine nature 
have been clearly seen, being understood from what has been made so that people are without excuse. You see, it's actually making a pretty limited claim here. It's saying that everybody can know something about God, but it isn't everything. It's a limited set. It's saying you can know his eternal power. His eternal power. You can know that. And you can know his divine nature, that there is a God behind the world. You can't know him, but you can know about him. Have you seen God at work? When do we see God at work? When do we get that sense? When we sit underneath the stars and we behold the beauty of God, feel our smallness and watch them wheel over our head. When you pick up a newborn baby and you say, I don't know how this person was made. That's a miracle. When you hold the intricacy of a fern and you see it wound inside itself and you look at that and you think, that's extraordinary. How could God care down to this level? When you see the Hubble pictures of the far reaches of the galaxy and you say, who's painting that? Who would care enough to make the ends of the universe for us to discover? Have you seen God at work? There are two types of ways that God reveals himself. There's a thing called general revelation. General revelation is the one that we're just talking about. From it, we can understand God's eternal power and his divinity. But that's it. That's all you can understand from general revelation. Remember what Psalm said? Night after night, they pour forth speech. That's what creation is saying. And then there's another category called special revelation. This is the Bible. And in the Bible, we can find out about God's name, his engagement in creation, judgment, and wonderfully and beautifully, his saving plan in his son, Jesus. We wouldn't know all that other than we had the word of God come to us. That's why the Bible's so precious. But the Bible does say there is a general revelation, which means that everyone is without excuse, even the people in Africa, who probably know Jesus more than we do anyway, but that's, that's by the by. But maybe you don't need to worry about that, because Nietzsche, uh, uh, German uh, philosopher, philosopher, Philosophica. Uh, he said that God is dead. What did he mean? Essentially the same as I have no further need for that hypothesis. What he meant was we figured out that humans are the pinnacle of the world. And we've worked out how to live without the superstition of religion. We don't need God. God, God is dead. In contrast to that, God expects a response. He shines his word into the creation and he expects a response. What what might that response be? Have a look at verse 21. Although they knew God in that limited sense, they neither glorified him as God nor gave thanks to him. But their thinking became futile and their foolish hearts were darkened. You see, there was a response that God was looking for. There were two things that you could do. If you knew God's divine power, if you knew God's divine power, what was the other one? His, uh, his, divine, his, his, sorry, his eternal power and his divine nature. Two things you could do. You could worship him as God or give thanks to him. Now, I think the reasons that we don't do that, we don't do these two things, we don't glorify him and we don't give thanks Here's the reason I think that we don't often do that if we're not Christians anyway. First of all, everything good I earned or deserved. 
everything good I earned or deserved. And I used the, uh, the illustration uh, before. I went to my boys' soccer game yesterday, and I was, the soccer ground was totally packed. I was going to have to park in another suburb. And then a park opened up just in front of where they were playing. And I thought, I'm a good person. Of course, I deserve to get that, uh, that car park. Wonderful. However, when I go up to Norellan and I've got a limited window at lunchtime and I've got to go and stand in the queue at the post office and I can't find a park, God is punishing me, isn't he? No, you guys don't know this feeling at all. Everything good I deserve, everything bad is God punishing me. Is that how it works? It's not how it should work, but how it works in practice, how we think about it. I deserve all the good things, and everything that's wrong is God punishing me. And so we fail to give God glory and to give Him thanks. Everything bad is God's fault. And so the right response was worship and thanksgiving. And when we don't give it, the impact, it says up there, is their minds became futile and their foolish hearts were darkened. The impact is that we have fruitless and clouded thinking, which is why we can't arrive at all the definitions of God on our own. We need him to talk to us. But maybe, let's not get too worried about this. Richard Dawkins, famous atheist, has this for us. Uh, the, uh, the London Atheist Society put this on 200 buses some years ago. Are you ready for this? This is a good word for you in church this morning. There is probably no God, so stop worrying and enjoy yourself. You don't seem cheered by that, people. The first thing to note, which I'm just being very cheeky, is it's actually an agnostic statement. Do you know what agnostics are? Agnostics are people who can't work out if there is or isn't a God. Atheists are people who know there isn't a God. Ironically, the atheists put an agnostic statement on the side of a bus. There is probably no God. Do you see that? They're not sure. How? How fascinating. But Dawkins is saying essentially, don't stress it. You should just get on and ignore God. Well, what would happen if we ignore God? Well, if we ignore God, we exchange Him for sin. And secondly, when we do that exchange, God will give us over to our sin. Part of the way His judgment is revealed is that He will give us more of the sin that we start. Let's have a look at this. This is the hard work of the passage. It's certainly the bit that feels most icky, I think, when we come to it. But have a listen and we'll see if we can work it through. In verses 22 to 23, we see this. Although they claimed to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images made to look like mortal human beings and birds and animals and reptiles. Now, guys, you've seen this. Uh, If you look at the wall of an Egyptian pyramid, what do you see? Hieroglyphics? And their gods are pictures, aren't they? Pictures of birds and animals that are made into gods. Are you with me? This is what we do. This is what we do. We create images in place of the real God. And God says in verse 24, therefore God gave them over, Paul says, God gave them over in their sinful desires of their hearts to sexual impurity for the degrading of their bodies with one another. Now, at that point, I think we scratch our heads and go, how do we get to sex from drawing pictures of God? Because when we step away from the God who is there, paganism does not treat sex as precious. 
paganism does not treat sex as precious. And so when we change out God and create our own gods, guess what the gods we invent give us permission to do? Pretty much anything we want. And so it's expressed in our sexuality. Sexuality was supposed to be a place of service of one another and portraying in complementarity and commitment something about the God who is there. And so what happens? They made gods of images that were made to look like human beings. We make gods of images that are made to look like human beings. They're not human, they are human beings, but you you know what it's like. We, We elevate people to a level and then we worship them and we give them all our attention. That's just an amazing picture, isn't it? We are people who trade in images and give permission for all sorts of behavior that doesn't sit well with God. And then in verse 25 we see, they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshipped and served created things rather than the creator who is forever praised. They exchanged the truth for a lie. There is a God and the lie is we've made a God or we don't need a God. And what happened? Because of this, God gave them over to shameful lusts. Even the women exchanged natural relations for unnatural ones. In the same way, men also abandoned natural relations with women and were inflamed with lust for one another. Men committed shameful acts with other men and received in themselves the due penalty for their error. Now, as a Jew, Paul would have known God's high sexual standard, very high sexual standard. As a man writing to Rome, he would have known what Rome was like. And you and I, guys, probably don't know very much about Rome. It was a debauched society. Not only did they have slaves, which they treated as appliances, not only did they have uh, gladiatorial fights where people killed each other for pleasure and entertainment, what they had was pervasive homosexuality. I read the other day that 14 of the first 15 emperors of Rome were homosexual. I cannot talk about the things that they did in church. I really can't. But it was appalling, and it was widespread, and it was condoned, and it must have been damaging to people. And God says, if you reject me, you'll pursue this path, and I will give you over to it. A distorted God will enable distorted sexual appetites. That's what will happen. And so their gods looked like humans made big, and they had affairs, and they lied, they cheated, and they murdered, And the people who made them lived like them. They created idols. And the reason that you create an idol, the reason you create an idol is to try and control the God who you are attempting to worship. Because when I can put an offering in front of you, I've now put a, a coin in the machine and I expect the God to dispense the blessing back the other way. There's one more exchange that people made. Furthermore, it says in verse 28, They did not think it worthwhile to retain the knowledge of God, so God gave them over to a depraved mind so that they do what ought not to be done. They've become filled with every kind of wickedness. Now, guys, you and I, because of the way we're wired up, will have been shocked to hear the stuff about homosexuality, won't we? Just will have. That's That's just right. But I want you to see here that there are 21 other sins listed that are the sign that we've got rid of God and that we're going our own way. And they include 
things that we might not think are as terrible as they could be. Uh, If I'm a gossip, I'm just lubricating office communication, aren't I? Uh, If I'm boastful, I'm merely being confident in my ability. If I disobey my parents, I'm exerting my independence. Here they are, listed as sins, 21 of them, as part of the evil extent of fallen humanity. Now, first of all, interestingly enough, because they're a more garden variety list, guess what? You've done them and so have I. And here they are saying that they're the mark of us abandoning God. You see, there is no morality without a moral founder to whom we can give an account. If you take God away, the God I invent and put in his place only has my morality. The God who is there has a holy standard and sees what is best for created humanity. And he calls me to account. You see, the wisdom of this world is really ignorance. And it's designed to provide a framework to excuse our sin. There's a great song by uh, uh, Credit House. A man called Neil Finn. Now, I won't sing it to you, but do you guys know this song? The line is, all I ask is to live each moment free from the last. Do you know this song? I could warble it, but I will not. It's a beautiful song. I, I love the tune. I think it's profoundly sentimental and gorgeous. However, it's, it's the essence of sin. Why is that? I want to live a life without accountability. All I ask is to live each moment free from the last. In other words, I want to be able to tread on you and get ahead in work and never have that count against me. I want to be able to yell and scream and get my way and never have that be a problem. I want to use people to my own end and never have that be a problem. All I ask, all I ask is to live each moment free from the... It's the essence of sin that we might live without accountability. The second all that's here is the one that says we are all sinful. We are all under the wrath of God. It says at the end of verse 20 there, you can see it highlighted, so that people are without excuse. And that is a problem because in verse 32 it says, although they know God's righteous decree that those who do such things deserve death, they not only continue to do these very things, but also approve of those who practice them. The tragedy is that you and I will often approve of the world going its own way. I want to finish by telling you, have a look with me, okay? You actually need to get your Bibles. Seriously, have a look. Open your Bibles up. Verse 18 follows on from verse 16 and 17. You have to trust me if you're not going to open them, but here's what it says. Verse 16 says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel, Because it is the power of God that brings salvation to everyone who believes. First for the Jew, then for the Gentile. Guys, if Christianity is the Ikea furniture of your spiritual life, then don't bother coming. If you just need to add another disposable bookshelf into your life, don't worry. Stay home. It's not worth it. Look at how good it is outside. Get out. However, 
if this is true, the, the inconvenient truth, do you remember that was the name of that uh, climate change thing? That our, our, the inconvenient truth is you and I aren't right with God. And if that's true, and I told you today you can be free from your sin, you can be forgiven by Jesus, then that's worth coming. That you and I owe worship and thanks to the God who is there, that's worth coming to do. And so guys, this very inconvenient truth, this awkward part of God's word, tells me why I need a saviour. And encourages me that he's there. I'm going to pray for us. Heavenly Father, your word is heavy. Your wrath is a huge topic. Father, we feel the weight of it this morning. Help us to see that sin matters. Help us to see that your anger against it means that you're righteous. Help us to rejoice that you offer forgiveness for all who trust in Jesus. For we ask it in his name. Amen.